If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the frontman for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. October, for example, was the classic time for falling out of trees, trying to knock acorns down to fatten pigs, uh, because that was the season for fattening up pigs on ripe acorns before you slaughtered them. That was Stephen Gunn on some of the dangers that face the inhabitants of Tudor England. It's not a society of equals. It's, uh, and, and I think that's that's one of the, the historiographical uh, myths of the Anglo-Saxon period. And that was Ryan Lavelle on the Anglo-Saxons. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. And currently, our Google Play and Kindle Fire editions are only available in the UK, but we do hope to roll them out to other countries soon. Last month, in our Christmas issue, historian Stephen Gunn co-wrote an article about dangerous toys and games in Tudor times. 
It was based on research he'd undertaken for a major project on accidental death and everyday life in 16th century England. I interviewed Stephen shortly afterwards, and I began by asking him to tell us a bit more about the project. So this research comes from a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, which is running for four years, uh, and we're now uh, nearly a year and a half into it. Uh, The aim of the project is to look at the 9,000 or so uh, coroner's inquest reports into accidental deaths which survive from 16th century England. Uh, So far, we have photographed uh, probably more than three quarters of the reports, uh, and we've classified all the reports from the 1550s. That's the decade we started with. uh, And we're now working on the 1590s with the aim of seeing whether uh, there are significant changes we can pick up between the 1550s pattern of accidents we found and the 1590s one. And the hot news from the first couple of years of the 1590s is that there are a lot more accidents with guns, which suggests that guns are spreading through 16th century England by the end of the century. For the article you've written for our Christmas issue, we're talking specifically about the death of children. Were there quite a lot of accidental deaths of children recorded here? Uh, about one in six of our accidents uh, seem to happen to children. Uh, quite often, the specific age of the child is given. Um, and what we do for uh, statistical purposes there is to break them down into what seems to have been one of the 16th century ways of thinking about people's life cycles. So children from naught to six, that they, th- they think in sevens, it seems. So children from naught to six, children from seven to 13, and then adolescents from 14 to 21. Uh, 21 was the age you came of age as a landowner. Um, uh, and uh, many apprenticeships and so on would have ended around that age. So there seem to be periods of about seven years at a time. And one of the interesting things that comes out there is that children under seven seem hardly ever to have been working when they had accidents, whereas children between seven and 13, about a quarter of the accidents they had were while they were at work. So clearly children of a certain age, unless they were uh, wealthy enough to be still in education between seven and 13, um, they would be expected quite often to be starting work of some sort. So even though the thrust of the feature was about dangerous toys and games, in actual fact, a lot of children were dying in the workplace. Yes, um, often uh, fairly basic jobs, so carrying things around, uh, often following somebody else carrying something, uh, carrying grain to a mill, for example, uh, or looking after animals, uh, taking um, uh, horses to water, for example, or, or feeding horses. Um, the one that surprised us with children working was large numbers of boys driving carts. Um, and uh, one of the accidents we found helps to explain uh, how they got into the position of driving those carts because we've got a nine-year-old boy who's being taught how to drive a cart by his father, uh, who then gets overexcited and runs and jumps onto the cart and then falls off it and, and, and is hit by the, hit by the cart as it, as it falls over. When we're talking about the very young children, quite a few of them, it seemed, would have died playing or with toys. Were these kind of deaths quite common in those days, like more so, for example, than nowadays? It's difficult to say because it doesn't always record what the children are doing. We're, um, we do get insight from the fact that quite often they're described as playing, but uh, quite often they're just described as being by water. Very large proportion of these deaths, particularly of small children, are drownings. Um, and so sometimes the way in which they're playing is described. Uh, one child said to be looking at her reflection uh, in a big tub of water. Um, uh, uh, another child is um, making mud pies out of mud and then presumably wet mud by a ditch and then falls into a ditch and, and, and drowns. Um, but it's not always clear 
how they're playing, what they're playing at, but but at least sometimes they they're described as playing, um, and uh, the 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 games that they play uh, are not always easy to reconstruct. Uh, so so this is one of the areas where the inquest reports don't tell us everything we'd like to know. Obviously, it would be nice to know if they were playing uh, knuckle bones or or telling each other nursery rhymes or quite what. But but they don't go into detail that they don't need in order to explain how the accident happened. But even so, I suppose you're, you're getting information from these reports that you probably wouldn't get elsewhere about the way children lived. Uh, well, that's right, because, of course, lots of the things that children did when they had accidents were things that were unspectacular. Uh, so they were things that nobody bothered to record. Um, and you can tell uh, things like where they were. Were they inside their house or were they in the garden yard, uh, say, around the house? Or were they actually quite far from their house? Do children have quite a lot of freedom to go around, which... Uh, some of them did, particularly as they got older, though a lot of the accidents to small children are either inside the house, uh, particularly very small children, sometimes strapped into chairs to stop them running around, but then those chairs toppling over it, it, into the fire. Um, or they're in a garden or a yard near the house. That's where quite often children are falling into tubs of water or uh, ponds in the back garden or wells or, or uh, areas of water like, like that. Or they're playing with animals very close to the house and then um, we, uh, we've got babies, not, not actually in the 1550s sample, but in other samples, uh, attacked by pigs, uh, but most often the most dangerous horses, as they, the, the most dangerous animals, uh, as they were for adults, were horses. Uh, so kicks from horses uh, or, or trampling by horses seems to have been uh, a really major danger for um, uh, people of all ages in, in the 16th century. Uh, and of course, then the accidents also tell you things like what time of day things happened. Uh, they'll tell you which day of the week things happened, uh, which months things happened in. Um, we've recently been doing some work on adult uh, games and recreations, uh, and that's very interesting because it shows you which months people did different sports in. So almost everyone who died playing football was playing football in February, whereas people who died watching uh, throwing competitions, um, throwing quoits or throwing the sledgehammer, which seems to have been quite a popular summer sport, that they were being killed in June and July, which seems to have been the sport for the, the, the month for, for, or the two months for playing those sports. And people who had accidents with collapsing maypoles, not surprisingly, tended to have them in May or in April when the maypoles had just been put up. So this can, can really open a window into leisure activities for adults and children in this period. Uh, it seems to open a window of a different sort from the windows that we've had before, uh, because most information we have about leisure activities, uh, at least before you reach the, uh, the 19th century when uh, folklorists or whatever you, you might call them became interested in uh, how children played and um, uh, what the traditions were of, of children's recreation and of adults' local recreation and why they were different from different parts of the country. You might think in, in the 20th century of the OP's great study into nursery rhymes, for example. Before all that, um, it's uh, really only possible to know about recreation most of the time, either because it cost money so occasionally uh, church wardens, for example, might pay to bring greenery into the church at different times of the year, or they might pay money for bonfires for um, uh, celebrating uh, bonfire night, gunpowder treason day, uh, things like that, um, or because the authorities were trying to control things. 
So we know why people thought that um, dancing around maypoles was a bad idea because it encouraged young people to uh, 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 get too friendly with each other and produce illegitimate children and so on in the in, in the nightmare vision of moral reformers of the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and we know why, for example, football was thought to be a bad thing because it stopped men doing their archery practice, which would have been a much more uh, militarily profitable way for people to spend their recreation time. Um, but we only know from that sort of material uh, that it was thought to be a bad thing, that authorities were trying to regulate it, maybe why it was thought to be a bad thing, and sometimes who the people were who were getting into trouble for doing it. What our sort of material tells us is not only for example, what sort of people were doing archery practice or playing football or throwing the sledgehammer or, or whatever, but also when and where and with whom and sometimes under what circumstances. So you can show, for example, that sometimes people from adjacent villages would play football matches against each other. And has anything in your research so far do you think will change our understanding of leisure in this period? Uh, I think one of the interesting things is swimming, uh, because the, the medical advice in the 16th century was mostly that it wasn't very good for you to expose your body to water. Uh, it opened the pores and let diseases in. Um, swimming became more fashionable uh, in the late 16th century, particularly under the impact of people thinking about the classical world, where clearly uh, the Greeks and Romans uh, had done a lot of swimming. Um, and uh, so it's interesting that the first book on how to swim in English was written by a Cambridge academic in the 1580s. Uh, and you find Cambridge students starting to drown trying to learn to swim uh, in, in significant numbers in the 1560s and 70s. Uh, and we're finding people in our accidents, not all of them uh, scholars or, or, or educated people or people who would be thinking, I must swim because the Romans were so manly and they did lots of swimming. Um, but some of them, people like that, uh, we're finding them drowning uh, from the mid-16th century onwards. So we've got a scholar of Eton College who, who, who drowns in the 1550s. Uh, we've got these Cambridge people in the 1560s and 70s. But we have also got, uh, apparently, uh, people who aren't uh, studying and presumably hadn't read books uh, uh, like that who are also trying to teach themselves to swim. We've got somebody who's trying to teach himself to swim in the River Severn with uh, inflated bladders that he's holding on to, but then the current is stronger than he thinks and it pulls the bladders away from him and then he, then he drowns. Um, so it does look as though people were uh, trying to swim and, and in some ways trying to teach themselves to swim. We've got someone who it said actually went to a pool to try to teach himself to swim. Um, but when this first book on how to swim is written, one of the things it says is if you're trying to learn, take somebody who's a strong swimmer with you uh, in case you get into trouble. And these people who drown are often people who, who drown alone. Uh, so uh, what this goes with also is a sense that um, at least at the height of the summer in July and August, people, uh, men rather than women, are completely stripping off and going into water to wash after work uh, because labourers and um, uh, uh, people travelling uh, a long distance and getting hot uh, seem not to have thought, well, the best medical advice is to stay out of the water, but just to have thought, I'm very hot and sticky and dirty and I'm going to get in the water and have a good wash. And then something goes wrong and they, they end up drowning. Coming back to uh, children, in these accident reports, were there any comments about negligence of the parents or guardian? Uh, there don't seem to have been. Um, uh, occasionally, uh, there's a comment that um, people didn't know where the child was, say. Um, uh, it, if people had thought that parents were being negligent, then it looks as though they would have been 
able to say so because the format of the reports would have would have enabled that. But even at times when we might think the parents are being negligent, so for example, there's a boy who takes his friends to play in his father's blacksmith's workshop and then uh, a hammer and a scythe fall down on top of him, um, there doesn't seem to be any blame placed on the parents. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the small boy who is uh, trying to drive the cart and then jumps onto it and turns it over, uh, it, it actually says that he did it without has his father having told him to do it so so there does seem to be a sense this wasn't the father's fault at all that, that the boy just suddenly ran off and, and and jumped on the cart um and it's difficult of course because the jurors are local people so it may well be that they don't want to um get the parents into any more trouble than they're in already uh, or that they don't want to cause them grief but then the jurors themselves could be uh um put under uh, pressure or punishment by the government if it turned out that they'd given an untrue verdict. So we have to put some degree of trust in what the jurors told the coroner at the time. And what were these reports used for? Were they for prosecutions or anything? Did anything come out of them? The, the point of the reporting process was to investigate the cause of death so that it was known whether it was a murder, because if it was a murder, then you'd start uh, a criminal investigation and uh, potentially bring a murderer to, to justice, uh, or whether it was a suicide, because if it was a suicide, then the goods of the person who'd killed themselves would be forfeited to the to the crown, to the, to, to the king or queen, uh, because uh, suicide was regarded as a, as, as, a, as a crime against the king as well as a, a mortal sin. Um, uh, so the idea was to look at accidental, well, look at all kinds of sudden deaths and decide whether they were uh, murders, whether they were suicides, whether they were accidents, or whether they were in, in another category, uh, which they called by divine visitation, which just means a sudden death with no obvious cause. Um, and the majority of those verdicts came in for people who, for example, died in prison, uh, where uh, jail fever seems to have gone through prisons uh, very fast. Uh, sometimes it's a terrible case in Oxford in the 1570s, where not only do many of the prisoners die, but even the people trying them in court catch the fever from them, uh, and, and the judges die as well. Um, and uh, so there are significant numbers of, of, of cases like that. But we do get occasional other cases where people just drop dead in the street for whatever and are not known to have any obvious disease and therefore uh, it's thought suitable to have a coroner's inquest into it. The problem, of course, again, with the records is that we have no way of investigating all the deaths of that sort that didn't have a surviving coroner's inquest made into them. So it's hard to use these things for calculating absolute rates of death or even absolute rates of accidental death, although we can try to use them for comparing things uh, as with the uh, the point that I was um, making earlier that, for example, horses seem to have been involved in far more deaths than uh, any other kind of animals, even other animals which you would think could be quite dangerous, like cattle. Does your research give you the impression that this was quite a dangerous time to be growing up in? Well, there were things that don't show up in our records that were much more dangerous than the things that do. So very large numbers of children would have died before they reached the age of five. Uh, and a lot of that is just from various kinds of epidemic and endemic disease, uh, particularly because diseases that adults had built up some kind of immunity to, children hadn't built up any immunity to. Um, children were uh, obviously particularly susceptible to fluctuations in diet caused by bad harvests or uh, problems with drinking water supplies. Um, so, so we're looking at a society with very large uh, infant and small child mortality, even quite apart from the accidents. Um, and similarly, uh, obviously, adults would have died in larger numbers from things like the plague or 
the sweating sickness or uh, influenza uh, epidemics than they would have done in our accidents. But then the accidents also shed light even on those epidemics. So, for example, uh, what appears to have been the first big uh, influenza epidemic in English history happened in the late 1550s. Uh, and it's during that epidemic that we get numbers of reports of people who are uh, in a confused state because they're running such a high fever. Uh, and this is used by the jurors as an explanation for why people will uh, try to get uh, water to drink, in particular, in irrational ways, and then fall into pits. We have somebody who comes downstairs early in the morning and smashes a hole in the kitchen wall in order to get out of her house, presumably because the, the front door's locked and she, she's a servant. Um, so she smashes a hole in the wall to get out into the garden so that she can get some water to drink. Uh, or we've got other people who are uh, in very high fever and uh, collapse at work. Uh, and then someone tries to pick them up and, and take them somewhere to look after them. And then they bang their head on, on, on a door. Um, so there are various circumstances in which people have uh, things which are accidents. And so they're classified as accidents in, in, in the records, but for which the context is uh, a large epidemic uh, of disease, which we know from other sources, in particular from parish registers, which uh, start in the late 1530s and record the baptisms and the burials uh, in each parish for the, for the places for which they survive. Those parish registers show us the, the large-scale movements of population, uh, and our accidents are just small pieces within that, that bigger pattern. So do you think that because disease was so rife in those days, even if there were quite a lot of accidents, people would have been more worried about things like disease than the accidental deaths? I think people were probably worried about both. It's interesting if you look at uh, pre-Reformation religious practice that um, people are concerned with sudden death. They're concerned with sudden death partly because they didn't want to die without having made confession of their sins to a priest. And so uh, it was said, for example, that there were certain prayers that you could say or relics that you could carry uh, or, or indeed that going to mass uh, on any particular day would stop you dying suddenly. Uh, on that day. So they were clearly worried about um, dying in an accident when they hadn't had time to, to compose themselves, um, particularly because uh, the classic deathbed people are meant not only to, to make their peace with God, but also to make their peace with their neighbors and call in people um, to whom they owed debts or, or against whom they had grudges or whatever in, in an ideal world and put things straight with them. So just being run over by a cart or kicked by a horse or falling into a river and drowning uh, was something that worried people uh, in, in a broader sense, not just in the sense that, um, that they would die doing that rather than dying doing something else. On the other hand, clearly people were very worried about diseases of all sorts uh, and, and sought all sorts of remedies uh, to deal with them. And indeed, the government started to uh, try to, for example, introduce quarantine to deal with plague outbreaks in the 16th century in a way that they hadn't done before. So I think people are worried about both the, the background uh, disease uh, kind of deaths uh, and, of course, background uh, starvation kind of deaths at, at times when uh, harvests were bad. Again, uh, 16th century governments were the first to uh, start to intervene systematically in the grain market to try to uh, bring grain onto the market at affordable prices in years of bad harvest so that people wouldn't uh, starve. And it looks as though 
the uh, the Lake District, which is an area with very poor communications to the rest of the country uh, in this period. The Lake District in the late 16th and early 17th century was more or less the last place in England where people died in large numbers in famines. Uh, people would be weakened or, or become ill or so, and so on in famines, but it looks as though there wasn't that much death from starvation in 16th century England. But even so, it's something people would have worried about. Um, it, it's interesting, of course, that accidents um, are something that uh, again, people could take measures against, and there are some forms of health and safety advice in, in 16th century uh, England. Um, we've been using a book by uh, Thomas Tusser, who's an agricultural author, wrote a book called 500 Points of Good Husbandry, which is advice for farmers. Uh, and some of that has advice about, uh, for example, um, keeping your rat poison in a very safe place because otherwise there's a danger that it will poison your your family members uh, and we have got people who accidentally eat rat poison and and, and die from that uh, or he also gives people advice that if they're trying to control birds that are uh, attacking their crops or their livestock by going up in a tree to destroy a bird's nest, then they should climb very carefully. And we've got numbers of people who fall out of trees after climbing up them in the attempt to uh, destroy bird's nests. So there clearly was uh, discussion in the 16th century about how you avoided accidents, um, but equally uh, things always go wrong sooner or later. Um, the other thing, of course, is that Although it's hard to say absolutely whether people are more or less likely to die in accidents then than they are now, uh, it's very interesting to see what the proportions of accidents are that are different. So drowning, uh, in 2010, drowning accounted for uh, maybe 2% of accidental deaths in Britain. Uh, in the 16th century, it's somewhere between 40 and 50%. So uh, the sorts of hazards that people are exposed to are, are very different. Similarly, horses uh, are, are a much bigger threat uh, in the 16th century. Um, and other things are much less of a threat. We have a few people, but not very many people, who die falling downstairs, whereas now that's quite a common injury uh, because in the 16th century, uh, most houses are only one or at most two stories, uh, and most of the population is rather younger. Uh, so, so the classic accidents now of older people tripping and falling downstairs are, are just not so likely to happen in the 16th century. Um, what's the next stage of your research project now? So the next stage is that we're moving on to the 1590s um, and uh, the idea being that having looked at the 1550s in detail, we can then look at the 1590s and see what sorts of comparisons we can make about change over time. Uh, in the end, we're aiming to work right through all the 16th century uh, accidental death material. Uh, it's thinner at the start of the century, so we won't have uh, quite so many records from the first two or three decades of the century then uh, the numbers are pretty constant from the 1540s, 1550s onwards. Um, and as we go along, the aim is to look at different aspects of uh, life. So we've been looking recently at uh, uh, um, work, uh, agricultural work, and also industrial work, uh, and how it's different in different parts of the country, different at different times of year. Um, October, for example, was the classic time for falling out of trees, trying to knock acorns down to fatten pigs, uh, because that was the season for fattening up pigs on ripe acorns before you slaughtered them, because there wasn't enough food to keep them going over the winter. Um, so uh, that's an area we'll look at. What we're aiming to do is to over the four years to look at as many different areas of 16th century life as we can through these accidents and then pull it all together at the end into a book that uh, works out what we can and can't find out about 16th century life from looking at all these accidental death reports. Well, it sounds like really fascinating research, but do you ever find it a bit too bleak? 
Well, it's true that because uh, every document that we're looking at is about somebody uh, getting killed in an unexpected way, uh, you do have to stop and remind yourself that these are tragic events. Uh, some of them... Uh, partly because they're very common accidents at the time, people walking along next to water and falling in uh, start to become rather predictable and ordinary. Others of them, when you read about them for the first time, are, are really upsetting. Uh, that, that We've got several with uh, groups of young people washing sheep together in fast-flowing rivers before the sheep are sheared, uh, and one person gets knocked over and gets into trouble in the water, and then one after another, all the others go in to try and help them. Uh, and that's one of those situations that's quite painful to, to think your way into. So they are distressing, and obviously the ones with small children in are particularly distressing. Uh, on the other hand, we do find ourselves, particularly when we put them all together or when we come across particularly unusual or interesting ones, uh, saying, well, uh, uh, in the end, uh, it's a tragedy. These people died. After all, they might well have died of the plague the next year. Uh, and what we find out about their lives from uh, the things that happened to them uh, do give us the chance in some ways to, to put them back into history and to take people who were very ordinary people, even in the 16th century, uh, and learn very interesting things about their lives and the lives of other people in the 16th century from the necessarily tragic events that happened to them. That was Stephen Gunn of Merton College, Oxford. His research has been undertaken together with colleague Tomas Grimelski of Wolfson College, Oxford. You can read their article in the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, which is still available as a back issue, as well as on the iPad. Before our next interview, I'd like to briefly mention an exciting new app that we've launched for the iPad. The Second World War Story is an interactive guide to the greatest conflict in human history. It's packed with expert analysis, stunning images and video footage. You can find the Second World War story at the App Store now. Anglo-Saxon England is often thought of as an idyllic land of rural peace and harmony. Yet, as Ryan Lavelle of the University of Winchester tells section editor Matt Elton, the truth was often far less bucolic. There's often quite a nostalgic view of the Anglo-Saxon period. Is this view fairly far wider the mark? There is a nostalgic view of the Anglo-Saxon period, yes, and uh, it's it's rather uh, misjudging the, the period to, to think of it in this, this kind of rosy glow of uh, sweet meadows and, uh, and, and, and babbling brooks and, and, and people sort of leading this, this sort of idyllic pastoral life. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite a long way far of the mark to, uh, to assume that life is like that. I'm sure there were, you know, quite, quite pleasant summers in Anglo-Saxon England, just as occasionally we, we get them today. But uh, the notion of, of a kind of rural idyll, I think, uh, has its roots in um, really in a, in a sort of post, post in, well, not, not just a post-industrial, but a kind of industrial uh, as, as part of the, re, the results of uh, the, the process of industrialization and the, the sort of Victorian responses to uh, industrialization, looking back to ideas of a, of a lost seed. And I, I, I think I get the sense that that, that uh, starts to uh, become really predominant in, uh, in popular culture in the 19th uh, century and and so you know when we 
romanticize the Anglo-Saxon period as as often happens, where where in fact sort of romance we're, we're picking up a Victorian idea in in many ways and uh, an early modern idea of of a kind of romanticized uh, Anglo-Saxon past. So yes, it is pretty wide of the mark. Okay, fantastic. So, I mean, talking about what life was actually like in the period, um, was there much of a class system? Uh, so, well, yes, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a society of equals. It's, uh, and, and I think that's that's one of the the historiographical uh, myths of the Anglo-Saxon period. So that's one of the the sort of myths that comes about through the the writing of history about the period is that uh, we've got this 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 kind of sense of the uh, the Anglo-Saxons uh, waddling about, as, as as Thomas Carlyle put it, waddling about in in pot-bellied equanimity. So there's the sort of uh, groups wandering around in, in, in quite uh, an egalitarian, equal society, uh, and that's that's one of the myths. And, and that myth is can really be dispelled by by looking at, say, an Anglo-Saxon charter, where the uh, a, a document which would record the, uh, the the granting of land, for example, where they um, were the people. In the society, the people at the top of society are quite rigidly uh, defined according to their offices. They're, they're ranked uh, in order of, of seniority. So even at the top, there's a kind of class uh, system. And then, uh, and then there is a there is a very large, evidently a very large uh, peasant class. Some free, and some uh, some of those the members of that class uh, unfree as well. And uh, the, there is a kind of sense of a, a rigid delineation between the the rulers and the rules in in what what could be called class terms certainly so how were these classes split up uh, so within within social classes of course to to say classes is is a bit of a, a modern misnomer in some ways classes is uh, to say class uh, a, a social class exists in the in the anglo-saxon period is is perhaps to put modern a sort of modern focus on it but we can we can say uh, classes maybe maybe in the in the medieval period the word order might be used for a, a group of people but uh, yeah i mean in, in in terms of class Divisions within within a sort of social class. Uh, there uh, there are people of um, different social distinctions who who do particular uh, tasks, who do particular uh, jobs on the land. There are particular peasants, in fact, uh, the yabur uh, class, who. Um, seem to have been increasingly predominant uh, in in estates in um, um, in rural estates who who are linked to um, particular pieces of land, particular areas of land where they uh, they they wouldn't in fact be able to uh, to move from those estates. In fact, uh, or they may have the the rights to move from those um, areas of land, but. Uh, in effect, if if they did move away, they they lose everything they put into that land in in working on it. Uh, so there are particular uh, gradations of, um, of 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 social position within the uh, within the rural um, uh, peasants uh, peasant classes. Uh, so 
So yes, I mean there there are evidently um, groups of people within the classes. Uh, there are there there were um, unfree peasants, entirely unfree peasants as well, who 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 could be equated with with slaves. In fact, I mean there, there, there does seem to be a, a distinctly large, uh, a distinct slave class as well, who may well have been, uh, well, who who were in many ways distinguished legally from the uh, the free peasantry. Uh, and 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 whether there's a, a sort of middle class or not, I think is is it's sort of open to debate. But uh, there were um, certainly traders in uh, Anglo-Saxon England too, and there's evidence that that people tried to uh, move between classes uh, according to to whether or not they they um, gained gained wealth and that there are particular sort of ceilings to social mobility in at, at, at points as well okay I mean talking about the very highest orders I suppose were there certain things that enabled you to become a member of those those top orders uh, yes yeah the ownership of lands is is the main thing so to own five hides of land is is seen as the the qualifying uh the qualifying um ownership the the, the qualifying um issue for people to be a member of the thanely class uh, in the 11th century and um, in fact Wolfstone the Archbishop of York uh, complains that uh, that people were attempting to to gain this this stainly position without having the the necessary li- necessary land so evidently you know maybe some there were some people who were uh, getting getting through this uh, qualifying position without uh, what was required but basically there the do seem to have been particular uh, material expectations uh, for for these um, people so so you've got that and then there are also other things that they might be required to have uh, uh, their own residence with their own uh, tower and their own bell tower on it and their own hall within that residence so these are you know these are these are quite major qualifying attributes these are the sorts of things that you you would associate with a with a knightly class in uh, later centuries in fact is, is very similar to the uh, the continental knightly class, uh, and 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 so that's that's the sort of thing that defines you of, as as being of aristocratic status in in the Anglo-Saxon period, and as as you move. As you move higher into the the nobility, uh, as you start to see the, the sort of super magnates, uh, one defining feature seems to be being linked to the royal family. Uh, so through marriage or through blood or, or perhaps by both, in fact, you know, being related to the royal family was an important thing. So, so in fact, this this sort of super kin group, uh, this this sort of class of of super magnates of of late Anglo-Saxon England, the the, the very wealthy uh, aldermen and, and later earls uh, were related to the the royal family uh, by by some very close uh, networks so these these are things that are, are perhaps less legally defining features than things which sort of come out of of belonging to uh, a, a powerful um, uh, controlling ruling uh, class in the in the period Sure. So, I mean, it sounds quite difficult to become a high-ranked kind of social member. I mean, how much sociability was there in the period? 
I think social mobility is limited. There are debates as to to how how easy it was to um, to move up through your uh, through the well, they, they were uh, far uh, far more opaque than glass ceilings in the period. They were, you know, they were very very defined glass ceilings between these uh, these different areas of of, of status, and. Um, so there are these these kind of debates relating to these legal texts uh, from largely from the 11th century about where where people might belong and and and, and there have been arguments that people could move up between those those classes but i think you would have to do particularly well in order to um in order to to become to move from being, say, a, a, a free peasant who had acquired a certain amount of land uh, and acquired more land and acquired more wealth as a result of this, and and and, and been a successful, um, well, been a, a successful farmer in effect, um, there were still limits as to to how far they could move up uh, to the thanely class. I think the the requirement is is quite a, a socially exclusive requirement. This is an exclusive club, the the thanely class in in late Anglo-Saxon England, and um, so social mobility. I, I think in that respect is limited, um, but evidently people were able to um, to prosper. You know, so it 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 was possible to um to do well it was evidently possible to uh, uh to flourish for for one states to to flourish and and say even for a, a free peasant to to acquire more land and the means of of uh, greater uh, production i mean this is a period the the, the uh, period of the eighth ninth tenth centuries are, are periods of of land clearance where, where more land is coming under production and uh, it's possible to uh, to flourish in that way it's possible because of the the opening of new markets as well uh, in in lots of in the many towns that are founded in England in the uh, the ninth and tenth centuries and and indeed the eleventh centuries, so it it was possible to um, to gain wealth to perhaps even uh, gain coins as well as a as a result of uh, trading in in markets uh, in in the period too. So so the possibilities of um, of social mobility in, in terms of material wealth uh, were evidently present. Uh, so I don't think we should really assume that everybody is absolutely bolted down to the uh, to, to states of, of penury and, uh, and and poverty. But nonetheless, there there are evident you know there are evident aims of, of, of stopping people who who do particularly well to uh, to climb the social ladder too quickly okay so turning um to the other end of the spectrum i suppose um what would day-to-day life have been like for the poorest members of society it it's difficult to know but uh, it's for the poorest members of society who do the most difficult jobs i mean it's it's uh, it's a hard life. I think it's a difficult life. It's uh, it's a, a situation where there's um, where where agricultural work has to be done in the the daylight hours that are available. Uh, in in winter time, of course, there's less work to be done because there's less daylight in which to to do it. And and uh, evidently, well, uh, gosh, what would we say? Uh, 
fewer tasks that are to be done in winter, but there are still tasks to be done, such as mending fences and uh, and 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 still ensuring that uh, uh, that the that land is uh, properly properly maintained. Um, there's there's a lot of agricultural tasks that are, are necessary in uh, in Anglo-Saxon England, just as in any uh, pre-industrial society where where people live on the land and, uh, and, and for the poorest members of society, uh, people were people live in a in a state where the possibility of of gaining a a sort of greater surplus of food, of of of, of things to eat, of, of ways to to sustain your family are are limited, and um, effectively, it's a subsistence economy where um, where, where where people are are living in in that manner. Um, so, in terms of the 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 poorest in society, uh, they. The poorest tend to be the the people who are socially unfree, are, are quite possibly slaves, and have to do the dirtier jobs uh, around the uh, around the Anglo-Saxon farm. Uh, they they have to do the ploughing, the hard work. There is a there is a tenth century. Uh, text which records the the words of a plowman, the, the sort of imagined words of a plowman, who says uh, he is asked, "Is it hard work?" And he says, "It is hard work because I am not free. I have to rise early in the morning to to do this work." And uh, you get the, the sense of the toil, boring, the the endless toil. I think is is the other part of it. I mean, to to keep. Plowing fields is is a tremendous, you know, using oxen, using uh, wooden plows and and the wooden plowshares is a, is tremendously uh, difficult work. It's it's hard work and it's also um, tiring work as well. Uh, so when you've got those those tasks uh, necessary, you've got the tasks of of looking after uh, animals as well and. Uh, and ensuring that the, um, the the property is is maintained, usually not your own property as well. Uh, the poorest members of society might have land that they're cultivating for themselves, but they're also cultivating land uh, for landlords, manorial landlords as well. So they're also doing the work for for those landlords. So it doesn't mean to say that there's no no possibility for you know for for thinking beyond the the sort of manual tasks, but uh, as as the um, the literature of of the Anglo-Saxons has has riddles, for example, which are uh, the 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 kind of literary entertainment, evidently the literary entertainment of of the uh, the working man and woman. Um, but the the idea that you would have tremendous amounts of free time in which to enjoy it, I. I'm I'm not convinced that there will be huge amounts of free time in uh, in in later certainly not in later Anglo-Saxon society uh, for the um, uh, for the, for the poorest members of society at at least for uh, for those who are uh, for those who are working on other people's land or uh, uh, or are socially unfree. Okay, thank you. Um, and moving on to another fairly major social group, um, how do you think women would have fared during the period? Well, I think the the thing is, I've been talking about 
people of of these different classes and women belong to these these different social classes as well i and um so there were female slaves there were uh, female members of the churlish class uh there were female yobors uh so the the, the kind of free peasantry and uh there were uh, uh, women nobles uh, so so women could be members of the the nobility uh, to the extent actually that there are um, anglo-saxon wills uh, of women who record the the render of, of what's known as a heriot payment uh, a, a rendering of weapons is is legally what what's meant by a heriot so you render weapons to your lord so that you might have the right to make a will and um, it's interesting that well there are a number of of wills of of anglo-saxon women uh, but it's interesting that there are some which refer to the the, the rendering of weapons to a lord uh, in order that they might be able to make their will just as a, a an anglo-saxon uh, male Thane would do uh, so there's there's a kind of um there's a kind of equality of status in terms of legal terms of status in some ways uh for for women but uh on the other hand women's position depended upon their father it depended on their husband or depended on their brother uh and uh, there's there's a number of I, I, mentioning the wills of uh, anglo-saxon noble women it's very interesting how many of the wills uh indicate the interest of the male members of the families in those wills so uh whereas uh these women may not have, have felt like they were being uh oppressed by the members of their families when they were uh, granting lands to uh to sons and brothers and whatever um there's a kind of expectation i think there's a very strong social expectation that they do the right thing for their family a kind of uh social uh, family corporate identity if you like a kind of family identity that uh, that, that women have to abide by ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That was Ryan Lavelle of the University of Winchester. He wrote a piece for our Christmas issue, which, as I mentioned earlier, can still be ordered as a back issue and purchased for the iPad. And that is about all for this episode. Why not tell us what you thought of it by getting in touch on email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at History Extra, or on Facebook forward slash History Extra. Do join us next week when we'll be talking about the Knights Templar, among other things. And in the meantime, you can keep an eye on what we're up to via our website, historyextra.com. There you'll find quizzes, blogs, book reviews, TV previews, and much, much more. Thanks a lot for listening. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. <laughs>